Welcome to the Wild Plant Culture Podcast, where we'll explore ecological restoration and cultural connections to nature in wide-ranging conversations. I'm your host, Jared Rosenbaum, and this podcast is born of my desire to connect with colleagues, mentors, and authors, exploring communities, plant, human, and otherwise, and their interconnections across time and place. This podcast is brought to you by Wild Ridge Plants, offering native plants, botanical surveys, and ecological restoration services. Find out more at wildridgeplants.com. ecologist, historian, and author Carrie Hardy along Lake McGuntacook in Maine during a recent family trip. He graciously grilled us a meal, served my son many glasses of lemonade, and sat down with me at twilight overlooking the lake for this interview. You might hear the mosquitoes buzzing as the sunset and witching hour began. I first learned of Carrie from his book Notes on a Lost Flute, a field guide to the Wabanaki, a multidisciplinary deep dive into the relationship between Native American foodways, language, place names, and ecology. Told in a series of personal stories in essay form, it's a fun read and a unique document. Carrie's an impressively learned guy, also a big-hearted, stout, rural soul who bikes 27 miles to work and lives just a few feet from the dock where his Adirondack guide boat is kept. It was a treat to spend a few hours with him, and I think you'll really dig this interview. Enjoy. It seems like you definitely err on the side of story when given the chance between sort of dry scientific presentation and, and painting a picture that includes your quest mm. for you know whatever the essay might be about. Yeah. And I appreciated that a lot. I feel like that's well, the stuff yeah. that, that glues to your brain, not just a big, supposedly authoritative uh, listing of facts. Yeah, I, th I think that's true, and, uh, and I don't have a problem, uh, you know, telling people that I'm not an expert and then launching into, but this is what it looks like to me. And I will say that that tone almost came directly from the reaction I had when I read Bernd Heinrich's book, Ravens in Winter. Uh, because in addition to what you're learning about and what he solved about why ravens do what they do, um, you get glimpses of him and his yeah. personality and you're just fascinated by this person who's, you know, carting sleds of, of uh, you know, 200 pounds of frozen dead meat up a toboggan to, to a mountaintop cabin uh, and, and dragging it out for ravens and then sitting in the snow watching them the next day after driving from Vermont. So anyway, you know, that book to me sort of made it okay to let the audience see the scientist or the the inquisitor, you know, the the 
let them see the writer in addition to seeing what he was writing. And so things like the essay about riding to Norwich walk on the bicycle and and uh, because botanizing from a bicycle, uh, roadside botanizing from a bicycle is so much more satisfying. You know, you see so much. I mean, walking is even better, but there's something wonderful about a bicycle that, that can take you 100 miles in a day and you sort of see every roadside plant yeah. in that 100 miles. So um, so I, I, I really wanted to, uh, you know, to at least at least be a real person rather than just, you know, a stream of words uh, to people. So, uh, and, and it's, it kind of comes from the effect Barron's book had on nice. it. Yeah, that was a great book. Mm -hmm. in, in your book, you describe a whole host of reasons why the main landscape was a really abundant food landscape for the native people here. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you'd be willing to talk through some of those because that's a great launching off point for some of the things that I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, yeah, and so, and I've, I've expanded uh, a little bit more on that on some writing I did for a magazine called The Collective Quarterly, uh, which they did like a 250-page, it was, it, they're mostly photojournalists, but they they wanted some essays, so I, I gave them several about the, the coast of Maine, and, and especially, you know, going way back in time. But, but because of the way the continents collided and crinkled the, uh, the crust of the earth in coastal Maine, so it's like the corrugations in cardboard, it, and because of that, you get these, uh, especially in the mid-coast area, you get these long peninsulas and with long coves between them. Uh, which were wonderful food-making places because in a long skinny cove you can put uh, a standing fish trap uh, and get a shut off when fish are up in the cove and you can you can using either noise and, and hunters or fire you can drive game down the long peninsulas and force them to take to the water and then it's much safer to kill a bear or a moose in the water you know um, but, but because there's this incredibly intricate um, edge between shore and ocean on the coast, and because of how many beaver ponds there were in the interior, there, every, there was just so much edge habitat um, that that was one thing that made it a food basket because the, the edge of water and land is always ecologically richer. The other thing, of course, Indian burning made the land much more productive of foods for people and large animals. And, and that, was, that was a big factor in, in how people fed themselves. But then the other really critical thing is that that corrugated landscape meant that you would have a, a different small river in the bottom of each fold in, in the crust. So between the Kennebec and the Penobscot, there's like 14 small rivers, you know, and each river had its own run of alewives in the spring, smelts in the spring. Um, some of them had salmon and most of them had eels running down in the fall. So as a result of, of all these small and medium sized rivers that we have in this crinkled coast, um, you had just incredible production of, and most importantly, alewives. 
and that was the fish that was the motor for the Gulf of Maine ecosystem, which is why when the Europeans came here, having used up their own supply of cod, they found five-foot-long codfish, uh, which got to be that size from eating alewives. And, and, uh, but the rivers had sturgeon and shad and smelts and salmon and um, alewives, uh, blueback herrings, um, you know, just just so many dependable food sources that you could pretty much set your watch on for, for showing up at a certain season and plan on being there and have a village site that you knew if you went there, if you went there May 15th, the alewives would be running, you'd have fish to eat, to smoke dry, and, and to use in your cornfields if you were growing corn. So, so all of those things made it a, a real food basket and then twice a day you've got tidal flats that you can always feed yourself from. So, um, and that's that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there were there were you know seabird nesting ledges where you could get all the eggs you needed in May and June, which is a lean time of year, unless you're eating fish. But yeah. in terms of perfect food, bird eggs are you know, especially on a paleo diet where you're burning everything off. Um, so filling canoes with cormorant eggs. I mean, they they just it was a hard place to starve and. Uh, and that was what, what uh, <laughs> that was what John Smith said in 1615 was that any man who can't, any man who can't feed himself here is either lazy or a fool because there's just so much food. Yeah. Um, Mentioned that um, you're working for a local land trust. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about about what you do there? Yeah. So it's on Vinyl Haven Island which is about 12 miles out um, in Penobscot Bay. And it's a good good sized island, I don't know, it's like nine miles long and three or four miles wide in places. And uh, the Land Trust has been active there since 1986. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of properties that they've preserved. Um, and like a lot of land trusts, we're sort of transitioning from the early years where it was protecting the most special places before yeah. somebody built a mansion on them. And that wave of work has sort of been done. And now we sort of realize that uh, at least as important is going to be addressing this, uh, this issue of, uh, you know, uh, nature deficiency in children and, and, uh, and just helping uh, the, the next generations coming along to understand and appreciate, you know, the undeveloped land that, that we have here. So we're doing more and more with schools every year. And, um, we're tinkering around with things like alewife restoration uh, in some ponds on the island. And, um, but, you know, the, the, the nature deficiency, it's not just a problem for children. It's, it's, uh, it's all age groups, really. You know, the, uh, the advent of uh, too much leisure time and too much television um, has really, you know, it's been 50 or 60 years of, of nature deprivation for a lot of people. So um, just doing, doing a lot of walks and talks and trying to get people outside. But, but the, uh, we're sort of maturing out of the acquisition phase 
and into the interpretive work, teaching, um, getting people out on the land uh, phase, and and getting trying to reach the gen the generation after the generation who took the steps to preserve the land, uh, and so land that we have easements on, you know, making sure that when the children inherit it from their parents, that that they will still want you know to be good partners and to help us uphold the easements on it so that's uh yeah that's uh it's it's a part-time job i'm sure it could be full-time if i wanted but but uh, there's too many too many other things to do yeah. um, but it is great because i get a nice long bike ride and a nice long ferry ride so the bike ride's my exercise and the ferry ride is riding riding time and then then i get to do trail work or brochure work or photography work uh, for my land trust job. Yeah. How does your experience thinking through what the pre-colonial landscape looked like and also thinking through some of the native life ways here, does that filter into your land stewardship and your, and your, uh, your work over at Vinyl Haven? Yeah, yeah, because, um, and this is just in the last year or so I've I've kind of been pushing the whole organization to um, to try and see that basically that land is is the repository of, of history you know everything that happens on land leaves some faint trace and when people happen to land they leave a lot of traces so on, in the case of Vinyl Haven, you've got like six dozen shell middens located around the island. And all of those have intact archaeological information, but they also have intact, you know, sacred burial spaces. Um, and you very quickly, when you start thinking that part of land preservation is preserving the history in it and learning the history in it, and realizing that native people have to be partners with you on this, you can't just you can't just uh, uh, ignore the fact that it's their history for many more years than it's than it's white European history. Um, so so you very quickly get into some deep water in terms of um, how much how much does your organization really know about its land? How much of its story can you share with people? Uh, and the answer usually is we can do a pretty good job of telling its story over the last 20 or 30 or 40 years and a pretty poor job of telling its story before then. Um, so I, I, really, I really think that there's going to be a big wave of land trust pairing with uh, local historical organizations in the years ahead. Um, and taking this broader view of what land preservation means and that it does mean preserving history uh, and, and, and helping, helping people understand its history. And you're talking about a lot deeper history than we often think of here oh, in the sure. East when we start thinking about the history of a site. Maybe we think, oh, so-and-so yeah. -so farmed this in the 1800s right. and you can still see the stone walls, but you're talking about potentially sure. thousands and thousands of years Yeah, of yeah. So on Vinyl Haven, for instance, there are still red paint cemeteries, uh, cemeteries of the, of the red paint or also called Moorhead Phase people 
but people who were here on the coast between 5,000 and 3,800 years ago. Um, and and uh, they, that name, the Red Paint People, is because of their burial uh, procedures of, of putting a lot of red ochre, uh, you know, basically burned hematite, iron ore, in the graves of the deceased, and no one really knows for sure why. Um, but so we have these settlements on Vinyl Haven, and we know that 4,000 years ago, there were villages of people living out there, um, probably getting a lot of protein from places like Seal Island, which has, you know, more than a thousand gray seals on it every winter, having pups and stuff. Um, traveling in dugout boats, fishing for swordfish, fishing for... Um, uh, and, and when I say fishing, a lot of fishing, a lot of Native American food making uh, was about doing it smart rather than the hard way. So some of the village sites on Vinyl Haven, uh, in fact, usually when I find out about a red paint village site, it's near a place where you could have a standing fish weir and where the tide was forced through a very narrow inlet so that whichever direction the tide was ripping, um, you would have, you know, fish um, coming through this narrow inlet and you'd have a weir there waiting to, uh, to just passive, you'd be passively fishing. Or, or you might make a bladder out of a seal stomach um, and use it as a float and put, put meat on a, on a bone hook made from an eagle's breastbone or something and just throw that in the water and then in the morning look for the look for the floating bladder you know to, to see uh, if a fish had had taken a hold of it and and then you'd go retrieve the fish so that kind of that kind of uh, passive hunting and fishing and gathering uh, where where you take the chance out of it and you don't spend a lot of energy um, the islands were great places for that one of the things that really grabbed my attention about your book was, and it's sort of in line with what you're talking about, about traces of history in the landscape, is you talk about a couple different plant species, and I'll just start off with one or two that seem like they, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't set the stage too much, but one of the plants you talk about is bur oak, mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that that Baroque population and yeah. sort of paint the picture and, and where you think, yeah, how that yeah. fits in. Yeah, and, uh, um, you know, we, uh, until, I can't remember the woman's last name, her first name is Cat, but there was a great book in California. Oh, yeah, Cat uh, Anderson. Cat right? Anderson, yeah, Tending the Wild. And, and uh, until, until that book came out, um, people tended to discount, I mean, even, even people in the field, tended to discount the level of management that, that ancient people exerted on the landscape. But um, I think it's really true, you know, that, that uh, um, though they did not manage it in, by uh, conventional European agricultural means, they nonetheless managed it. And so, you know, everything from, everything from, uh, hunting beavers, uh, the way you did that was to disturb their dam because you knew they would come to you to fix it, <laughs> you know, and you'd be waiting there when they came to repair it and when they felt the water level going down. Um, but, uh, but plants that you could carry 
with you, uh, and nuts are a great example of this. Um, the whole, uh, you know, when you look at the, at the families of oaks, they talk about the white oak family and the red oak family. And the red oak family tends to be, have a lot of tannin and be yeah. very bitter and harder to process. And the white oak family, which includes white oak and bur oak and chestnut oak and things like that, um, tend to be very palatable nuts. So um, the, the fact that bur oak in Maine, that there's a remnant population on the St. John River, uh, just across the line in Atlantic Canada, and there's a huge population of Baroque on the uh, all along the old portage route between the Penobscot River and the Kennebec, coming down the Sebastocook River, and it uh, it just it just seems like a lot of these um, a lot of these plants. And we were talking about groundnut earlier, you know, yeah. um, things things that that you can easily take with you in the form of a nut or a tuber. Um, it seems logical that people would have brought them. Well, I think one of the things that I put in the book that was fascinating to me um, was, was about how when Jacques Cartier sailed to the New World in 1535 and is sailing up the coast of Maine and, and today's Nova Scotia and uh, New Brunswick, going on his way to the St. Lawrence, he's talking about all along the seashore are white and red roses. And so having grown up or having gone through school, being told that rugosa rose is an escaped alien plant yeah. uh, that has spread in recent times, um, it's just interesting to me to see Cartier saying he saw red and white roses all along the shore. Yeah. Um, because I really wonder how long they've been here and if, if uh, rugosa rose you know, came to the new world with people. Um, yeah, it's such a great edible. Would yeah, kind of nice to have it be a native species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a uh, or, or to yeah. have some more complex story. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a. Uh, I've never, I've never yet seen anyone claiming to know how long it's been around. Yeah. You know, uh, you're just told that it's a uh, an alien plant, <laughs> non-natively. Yeah, one of the things that gets me is, is I'd like to have an archaeology and a sort of evolutionary dispersal history for everything that's mm -hmm. out there. Cause, but yeah. that information is so scant, mm -hmm. and it's it so is. hard sometimes to find well, remains yeah. of things. And so you end up, one of the things I liked about your book is that you're pulling in a lot of different strands. You're sort of pulling in uh, mm -hmm. a lot of linguistics. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, stories, early contact records. Well, and yeah, and, and the linguistics. Yeah. I mean, I, I often say to people, words are among the most durable fossils that there are. Um, and so, an example, you know, if you grow up in New England, you don't call it a large tree; you call it a hackmatack. And that, uh, I, I mean, it. I sort of thought that must be a Native American name, and finally. One day I was looking at it and said, "Oh, it's it's Agam Adakwa, and Adakwa means a, a cone a cone bearing tree, a conifer, and Agam means snowshoe. So the snowshoe conifer was Agam Adakwa, which became Hackam Attack. Um, what's interesting about that is that you would in a, in a climate like this where you have white ash, 
which is a much preferable wood for making snowshoes, you would not use Hackmatack uh, by choice, you'd use white ash. So the word goes way, way back. It either goes back to a time when people were here, but yeah. white ash was growing down around Mississippi, sure. you know, in the aftermath of the glacier, or it goes back to a place uh, in terms of where people came from, uh, where larch grew and white ash didn't. Um, and the word for snowshoe, uh, you know, uh, is that old, and the word for larch is that old, and the word came here with people, and even though it's now in a climate where it doesn't make sense, there's a great story bundled up there that either goes way back in time or way back in space, or both. That's fascinating. Archaeology keeps pushing back the dates for human habitation in the yeah in, in North America and and in the Northeast. I don't. Do you have any skin in that game? Do you have any well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, because because and and this is this is where it's wonderful. Uh, I often say that, you know, no no particular academic discipline would have me because you know the, I I don't qualify to be in any of the clubs. Um, and, I, and the, the blessing of that is that you're free of the uh, dogma that goes with each discipline. So, for instance, um, I'm, in the work I'm doing down on uh, Long Island and in New York and New Jersey now, um, reading a history of Long Island, I saw an account where this historian uh, talked to well diggers about what they found when they went down. And one of the well diggers uh, on Shelter Island at the northeast end of Long Island uh, related uh, finding at 58 feet, after going down through 58 feet of gravel and glacial till, um, pulling up round beach stones and um, uh, an, an Indian stone pestle, a beautifully polished Indian wow. stone pestle. So, if you realize that the extent of the Wisconsin glacier, you know, was 20,000 years ago when it was uh, covering Long Island in gravel, uh, an anecdote like that, which is only one anecdote, uh, is nonetheless intriguing to me, especially since I've seen another anecdote from southern New Jersey by the Swedish botanist Per Kamm talking to old well diggers and again talking about Indian tools coming up from under the gravel wow. uh, on, on just on the on the Jersey side of the Delaware near Philadelphia. So the and the analogy I like to use is because I hunt a lot and you can be walking through the woods, uh, dry woods full of leaves and then come to a wet spot and see a, a single deer track. And that's all these anecdotes are is single deer tracks. But the <laughs> The interesting thing is that that track proves that a deer was there. And so I don't discount anecdotes, even though they don't meet what we, you know, today call the burden of, of proof, you know, from a scientist's point of view. They're nonetheless important uh, anecdotes to preserve and yeah. to be aware of and to just think maybe, maybe people were there um, before the last glacier. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so. that's really interesting. And for a long time, there was a lot of pressure to not 
find anything older than you know a couple of thousand years old and then more recently there was a lot of pressure to not find anything before clovis oh yeah 10 11 000 years ago or whatever yeah. that was yeah and it was like if you find that you're going to be ridiculed so exactly you not that's find what abbott it. put up with in new jersey yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah abbott was really pilloried for that and then oh, mm-hmm. i guess he was right after all yeah how about that that so. uh the the site the site the kill site you know where they found the uh <laughs> the uh, uh, the point embedded in the mastodon or whatever it yeah. was, you know, that sort of changed things. Mm. How you doing with the mosquitoes out I'm, here? I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah. I yeah. figured you'd probably be used to it, but I don't yeah. know how used to it you can get. So no, it's okay. we're, we're, you know, for the uh, presumed future audience of this interview, we're sitting out on the banks of Lake Maguntacook. Is yes. that the way? Yes. Yes. What is Maguntacook? Uh, that's it's an a, interesting puzzle linguistically. Yeah. The Tukuk always means at the river. Uh, and then the, the first part, Magan, or in the old days of Camden, uh, the, the oldest maps call it, n- starting with an N, Neguntukuk. And Nagan can mean uh, the first, and it can be the first... <laughs> it can be cardinal or ordinal, as they say. You know, it can mean the first in time, or it can be the oh. first one you come to, or it can also mean the ancient, uh, ancient, ancient one, or the abandoned river. And uh, so, so something along those lines. Um, this is, I mean, it's a really striking landscape here, and it would have been a very food-rich landscape. And uh, so. So to think that the name Nagantukuk, with it starting with an N, is probably what it was, and that for some reason it was it was the first river, um, or or the 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 abandoned river, the river where we used to live, um, but but that's just just uh, just my take on it. I I, uh, I don't know if we'll ever know, um, but that would be my guess. And uh, but yes, the the fish are jumping and the bugs are biting and <laughs> um, and it's still a pretty good place to be. I'll probably jump in that lake a little later. And this is where you grew up, more or less, right? With the Camden Hills over on one side and the big lake here and yeah, yeah. And uh, you know the uh, when you're a kid and you have. Uh, a lake at your disposal in the summer. It's not hard to find things to do, and there are brooks full of fish, uh, full of trout that I would go after. And then, and then there was a, a really big state park right behind my house uh, for the cooler times of year to go out, you know, with a dog or with friends, or riding a bicycle up old woods roads to the to the highest spot you could get to in the mountain. And uh, so a lot of a lot of the uh, interest in botany and stuff like that goes goes all the way back to to childhood stuff like that nice. that you talk about in your book is american plum and uh american plums being one of these plants that i've been obsessed with trying to find and it's supposed to be relatively common i guess and the first bunch of years i never found it and then i found you know, one or two and just within the last year even really just this year found some nice populations by me and optimistic mm-hmm. that I'll have a chance to actually taste one. Mm-hmm. But it's not the kind of plant that you just see in the understory of any given 
woods. No, so no, not at all. Yeah. It's an edge edge of the yeah. forest plant. So I'm kind of curious about your experience of American plum. I know you write about it and from a couple different angles. Mm. And uh, what's its niche like up here? And what 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 would that plant most want from us? And what's yeah, been your experience with it? Well, I think I think it's uh, like a lot of a lot of plants. Um, that would have been very prevalent back in the days of Indian burning, that a burning regime suits it very nicely, you know, and both in terms of unlocking the woody, uh, the woody uh, seed, you know, it's a, I guess it's a droop maybe, but anyway, it's got a big woody seed in the center, um, and it's not the easiest thing to germinate probably, but uh, all of the berry and uh, poem, you know, bearing plants um, really thrive in a landscape that gets burned regularly because um, and of course the other thing you you uh, would have had back in the day would be a lot more grouse a lot more uh, turkeys possibly even uh, passenger pigeons as vectors although I would have to think a plum pit would be a kind of a hard thing for a I think they'd probably peck the flesh away but not swallow the pit but a turkey i would think might do it pit and all yeah um, yeah the pits aren't all that big yeah yeah and but but anyway um you know they the the places i see them are in sweeter soil uh on the edges of forest but it's also along what was an old indian portage uh from from what's now rockland to what's now augusta and the trail um went out uh through the woods and which is to, it's today Lime Rock Street in Rockland and they're just growing in kind of vacant lots uh, along along this old portage route so again I don't rule out people uh, having a hand in it especially because some old residents in town have told me um, well that their grandmother grew up in the big farm that was all of outer Lime Rock Street and remembered being a child and being scared walking to school because she had to go through the Indians camp um, when they were still mm. camping here seasonally and so those those plums um, she's talking about the part of Rockland where I find American plum so I don't I don't rule out people having a hand in them being there but um, they're uh, uh, any any place a cherry tree can grow and you, as you know I mean black cherry doesn't need much encouragement to no. grow and American plum other than just just I mean that it's growing it's growing in uh, in places where the uh, the the wild parsnip not cow parsnip but the you know escaped European parsnip yeah. grows yeah. I mean just sort of nothing soil yeah. um, New England aster grows beside mm -hmm. it and around it, nice. um, and uh, but it will grow in richer soil too. I know, and it uh, uh, unlike some some places in Maine, you see cultivated plums that have formed a monoculture thicket by spreading from rootstocks, but I haven't seen I haven't seen American plum doing that yet. I always find discrete plants. Um, and uh, one of them's right by the Rockland dump of all places, <laughs> you know. It's, uh, and it was quite, quite a surprise to find it, but, and I'm sure since you look for plants, you know what I mean when I say this. Um, there's that, 
that sort of courtship period where you're learning what the plant looks like and what time of year it blooms. And then all of a sudden you sort of get to a point where you, you see it, you notice it every time you see one. Yep. And then you get to the point where you can't help but see it and your, your body is actually saying, oh, this, this week of the spring, and you, you can see it from a quarter mile away and it's just got the, yep. that little bit of a tinge where you can pick up the maroon stamens on against the white blossoms and, and you say, oh yeah, that's plum over there. That's and exactly what happened to me this year. All of a sudden I found a couple populations 10 minute drive from my house. Yeah. But I finally got the search image. Exactly. That was the phrase I was going to come out with myself. Yeah. yeah it's, it's just like being a predator. And once you have that search image, um, it's really easy to find stuff, yeah. you know. If it's there, you find it. This is going to be a really broad statement. I think I'm almost just fishing because I don't have a fully constructed thought here, but there's a group of plants that, by me, in highly fragmented, disturbed, deer-browsed, invaded New Jersey are, I think, just sort of slipping away. And they don't get really noticed because they're not necessarily uh, rare species of old forests and they're not endemic to some you know mm -hmm. rare soil type but they're sort of the fruiting shrubs anything from mm. hawthorns to service berries to your sort of american plums yeah uh, your aronias yeah uh definitely your native roses viburnums, they're just yeah. kind of viburnums they're just nanny berries they're just kind of I think, and I haven't been around long enough to contrast, but they seem to be much scarcer than by all accounts they would have been, even very recently. Yes. So yeah. I come up to a place like me, and I'm like, yeah. wow, yeah. there's so much to forage here, there's so much fruit, and it seems like maybe still, you know, even though there's not that burning, there may be other forces at work here that keep areas either open or suitable for that. So we come here and we just, we berry pick all day long. Yeah, yeah. But those species are... You know, I do, I see little hawthorns in the woods, but they're little bonsai deer browse things, and they're just not, they're not reproducing themselves at all by no, me. No. And so I'm just fishing here, but if that brings up any thoughts for you. No, it does. I, yeah. I think you're, I think you're totally right. And that's how, that's really how extirpation happens. You know, all of a sudden something that always was there and that was just kind of, kind of getting scarcer and all of a sudden there isn't a, a sustainable core to the population and it just kind of gutters and yeah. <laughs> goes out you know but the you know when John Jocelyn was in Maine in the 1600s uh, he he said the red lily grows everywhere in the countryside and he's talking about wood lily you know and you you drive around the countryside now and you don't see wood lily everywhere. Yeah, that must have been something. And that's a that's a classic, you know, fire maintained landscape sort of plant. And so for him to be saying it is ubiquitous, um, every place he went in southern Maine, um, you you just realize that uh, um, the landscape has has just changed so much. And that was that. That's what that article uh, that I wrote for the Wild Seed People this this winter was was saying that you know you just you you would not recognize it um, because just the percentage of of non-native species the percentage of the landscape that they occupy now a, a, a hayfield uh, there there are no basically no native plants left in a in a hayfield you know. And the lupin you see driving through Maine isn't native, and yeah. all of these, uh, all of these things that 
define the landscape we know now. Um, it was just just a totally different, totally different palette when you had Indian fires and and beaver mm -hmm. ponds um, uh, managing the landscape and, and a lot of old growth forests. And the the uh, I don't think I don't think fruiting shrubs um, like you're talking about have ever uh, have were a big thing in in bygone days they were they were certainly present around burn landscapes but most of Maine was forest then or and and swamp you know because the beavers um, would have been much more prevalent but um, they uh, when and, and in fact I was talking with Baron Heinrich about this this theory of mine that uh, um, I think Indian burning and Indian agriculture in the uh, Midwest and and down the East Coast um, may have been responsible for passenger pigeon uh, exploding in numbers mm -hmm. because once you had that early successional landscape established everywhere and once you had oak savannas um, and basically you know tall grass prairie or, or like on Long Island, Hempstead Plain, which was like 16 miles long and eight miles wide, um, burned ground that grew strawberries like we've never seen yeah. before because you've got sandy, you know, acidic soil um, and, and the burning supplying, you know, the, the uh, uh, potash. And, and so it was just, it was just, the best strawberry plantation in the world, basically. And so things like that, I think, set the stage for passenger pigeons to explode in numbers um, because they had the motor to outcompete all other birds to get to them. And Indian burning up here would have made blueberry barrens, and that was a favorite for pigeons. Um, so, so uh, um, you know, the these, these uh, these dogwoods and viburnums and hawthorns and all of the uh, fruit-bearing shrubs that are early successional uh, woods edge, fields edge sort of plants um, were were certainly big where where the year-round villages were for the natives. Um, their their name one of the names for staghorn sumac is old campground shrub. Oh, that's great. You know, and uh, and and so. Uh, um, but I, I think you're right that they're they're on their way out, and that you know deer. We see this on Vinyl Haven. There's too many deer, and a lot of uh, plants just never get woody plants never get to grow. They get browsed. When we drive around Maine, and you know we're just visitors, so I don't know the landscape all that well. But it seems like so many of the forests are really young and mm. they're really dense, and they're on a either they're on a really tight timber rotation or they were up until really recently. Yeah. And it sounds like the, uh, you know, the pre-contact main landscape would have been a lot different. Do you see any places that give you little inklings or little, little kind of hints of what you think that might've, what, what do you think that might've looked at like? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, there's you you get a few places if you go up to northern Maine where you can actually see, you know, what a big old forest looks like, and Baxter is starting to get that 
kind of antiquity to mm -hmm. some of its patches of forest, um, even though it was cut over, you know, a couple of times before it was preserved. But um, no, I, I, I have to say, I have to say, even though I've written about it and what it would look like, I have to say my, my hunch is that even I would be blown away at how different it would have looked yeah. back then. Um, you know, because, I mean, Champlain uh, and, and also Rozier and Weymouth, so a French explorer and an English explorer, both here around 1605, both talked about it looking like a pleasure park where the oaks, where the big oaks had been planted by design. So they're basically describe, describing the kind of oak savanna that, um, you know, was still present uh, like in the Ohio Valley when the yeah. first whites went there and in Indiana and places yeah. like that where the annual or even biannual burning um, uh, by, by Native Americans favored these big oak trees. Um, which the bark, if, if you burn frequently enough and early in the year enough, then the fires aren't that hot and it doesn't kill the nut trees, uh, it doesn't kill the oaks. And they, if, you know, if it was a big producing oak tree, they would probably even do a, a backfire ring around it first, you know, to make sure that it didn't yeah. burn too hot and too close. Um, so, so if, if, if there was a, an oak savanna sort of landscape here, as they describe, then all of these things we've been talking about, the, the berry shrubs around the edges, strawberries and blueberries in the middle of the savannas, wood lily all through it, uh, a lot of sumac as it's reverting, uh, a lot of aspen, um, you know, which, and a lot of uh, uh, prunus pennsylvanica, um, I'm sure, uh, which, which was probably... Um, probably food for people then sure. and a lot of, a lot of choke cherry which just had so many uses if you read mormon's book yes. on ethnobotany that's the biggest it's the biggest single of yeah. any, any plant in there yeah that's right and so um you know things like things like that um when you when you uh, had the the pre-engineered landscape you know before europeans showed up the amount of wet ground um, and the fact that all the important Indian medicinal plants came from like open heaths, you know, acidic heaths, um, the receding glacier uh, and all the little kettle ponds formed by the big giant ice cubes breaking off the glacier um, and then filling in with peat and then getting, you know, getting the bog plants, pitcher plant and, and the some of the bog orchids and stuff like that that found their way into the, um, you know, in Indian pharmacopoeia. Anyways, they, uh, um, there, would, there would have just been so many thousands more acres of that kind of habitat back then. And the fact that beavers were actively impounding water and were also moving around and basically impounding, impounding any place that you could make any kind of a pond, there, there would have been beavers there and beaver dams um, and flooded land that, that, would, uh, that would grow, you know, some of these plants or, or plants like cow parsnip that, that uh, um, you know, are very particular about where they want to grow. 
and I'm sure that those patches uh, would have been would have been known to the natives and and preserved. But also in in Passamaquoddy, uh, there's there's a phrase Nabizan Kikon, which means medicine garden, and so that you know that very phrase suggests people are collecting medicinal plants and growing them you know closer to to where they live to, to harvest them uh, so again I think I think we uh, I think we underestimate the the amount of control they exerted over the landscape it was just a softer control than the way our people control it you know yeah we don't have a really good word or set of words to describe this completely other way of creating abundance in the landscape but not necessarily through turning it into agricultural monocultures but it's also not the same as just sort of you know willy-nilly you know picking things up in the landscape it's it's a kind of a management but even the word management doesn't seem to uh yeah well and it's and it's interesting you know in terms of uh, we we uh we really we really as a culture are, are deficient in our ecological sense and I'm just thinking sitting here if I'd been sitting here 50 years ago as a child right now there would be at least a dozen nighthawks flying overhead and you'd hear them you know and you'd look up and see them with the little white chevrons on the wings and there's nothing else like it you know you could tell them instantly and the telephone lines along the road here would routinely have you know two or three hundred barn swallows um, perched on the wires, you know, most of the time, and the, out over the water, as flies were hatching, there would there would always be barn swallows in flight, um, and uh, you know all of these all of these things that we've tinkered with the ecosystem because we don't like mosquitoes or you know we've cleared we've cleared away uh, a lot of land and so there's not as much mosquito or black fly habitat anymore and I'm not saying I like them but but it ripples on down through you know the other species and if we if we start messing up the pollinators that evolved with you know the dicotyledonous plants um, uh, and and where the flower morphology is specific to one or two species of insect pollinators. Um, if we kill those insects, then we say goodbye to those plants too, because it's a, they come as a pair, you know. Uh, yeah, it's an apocalyptic vision for me. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, speaking of the mosquitoes, <laughs> yes. I would gladly talk for another hour, but I've given a lot of blood, and I suspect we're blood brothers at this point, whether we yeah. wanted to be or not. Yeah, uh, yeah. The mosquitoes no, have I... pretty much hit every available spot, so I feel like we should wrap up. But if we can stand another couple dozen bites each, yes, um, yes. <laughs> tell me a little bit about what you're up to now. Is there anything you're hot on the trail of? Is there anything you've been writing about or that you're seeing one deer track at the edge of the swamp and you're wondering <laughs> if there might be some more leading in some direction? Yeah, yeah, there's uh, um, so uh, an essay that I was working on all, all this past year, which I call The Spectrum of Surplus, is just because of this project I'm involved with uh, in the Hudson River estuary, 
where we're basically trying to retell the whole human history there. And this particular essay, which I wrote, all of my essays, I, I write talking to myself the first time through because it's, it's trying to make sense of the data I've accumulated, you know, reading old primary source histories and stuff. Um, and but basically, it's it's saying that the the critical difference between the Native American culture uh, and the European culture that invaded here was that um, was was the commodification of natural resources, where the goal was not merely subsistence, but it was harvesting a surplus and selling that surplus and creating wealth by the more you harvested, the more money you made. And so, um, you know, when you, when you look at history in this sense, and, and I do because I firmly believe that most of, most of human history to this point um, is a subset of economy, especially European uh, and colonial history. Um, it's economy that is driving the events that we record as history. And furthermore, economy has to be seen as a subset of ecology because it's that natural resource base and that's, that's where people have always gone, including in the European you know, mercantile system where you, you, you go after the same resources, whether it's whales or whether it's uh, you know, cedar to make fence posts of, but the difference is you go after it in unlimited capacity if you're of this European ses, uh, you know, uh, system. So, um, you know, Native American uh, philosophy talks about seventh generational thinking. And if you read, uh, if you read Per Kalm, the, the Swedish botanist account of traveling in America around 1750, and talking, and, and he was basically the first ecologist. He, he called himself an economist, but, but he was an economist of the natural world. And everywhere he went, from Philadelphia to New York, up to Albany, and even into Canada, he was, he was relating how, he, he's talking to the oldest colonial settlers, uh, Swedish ones, and they're telling him, oh, in my grandfather's day, that bay was covered with swans at this time of year, and now there aren't any. Or that, well, that brook used to have enough water power to, to turn the mill dam that's there, and, and there isn't enough flow anymore. And he's cataloging things like soil loss or the loss of the whale fishery. Um, and and, and uh, I realized that if you go back to, say, 1600, the, the gap between 1600 and seven, 1750 is kind of that seven generations. And that seven generation non-thinking brought all of these resources to the point of extirpation um, before America was even a country or an independent nation, you know. So to just realize that that, that seventh generational thing works both ways, um, was was kind of uh, the out, the upshot of, of writing this essay to myself, and it'll it will turn into something someday on this New York uh, area history project I'm working on, with a lot of other people. But that's that's uh, looking 
looking at that transition between Native American human ecology and European economy and what it uh, did to the Native folks as a consequence and uh, all the different ways that it affected them is, is kind of what I'm working on now. But that, that history project, um, it's looking to return missing voices to history because we all grew up with this sort of heroic colonial history of settlers against the wilderness. And the missing voices are the native people that were dispossessed of, of this place. And you never hear the voices of, of the, you know, tens of thousands of enslaved Africans that were needed to build this place. And I mean, we grow up not even realizing there was slavery in the North, and there was a ton of it in New York City. Um, so to return those voices and the fact that the colonial history is always missing the voice of women. And I have this idea that because the most eager and rapacious colonists of all are these sort of lower middle class um, young adventurer types who are out to make a buck in the new promised land, um, whether it's off Wales or whether it's off cutting trees and making turpentine or whatever, looking for gold, you know. but. But you get this sort of rogue fraternity house culture of just all these white guys of sort of a lower class grasping kind of way about them. And all of these atrocities that, that were committed against native people were probably made worse because there wasn't gender balance in the mm -hmm. colonial landscape. And then the last missing voice is the voice of the ecosystem. Yes. Because nobody ever tells the story of the plants and, and, and animals and what, what happened to them. Um, and, and so that's a lot of missing voices to supply. And I'm hoping we can get that done uh, in time so that as we come up on the 400th year anniversary of the, sell the selling of Manhattan Island, um, you know, rather than a lot of colonial breast beating, there will be a new narrative to uh, to put out for people and say, well, wait just a minute, here's, here's an actual complete balance sheet of this metropolis. Yeah. And uh, it's not quite the success story you might like to think it is um, because these hidden costs uh, have, to be, have to be taken into account. I'm really looking forward to reading and experiencing this next wave of work that you're doing. I was already um, really, really appreciated what you did with your book, but it sounds like you're on to some, you know, you're definitely not sitting on your laurels. Definitely <laughs> doing some really interesting, uh, or, or whatever you would call them, yes. definitely doing some really interesting work now. So I just want to thank you uh, for what you're doing and for your time tonight, despite... Um, and, you know, good night, mosquitoes also. But uh, <laughs> thanks for sitting out here with me and chatting. I'm really looking forward to getting this out there. This is a really fascinating conversation. Well, it was, it so was great having a so chance to, uh, to meet you and your family and to talk with you about this stuff. And, and oh, what, wow. and how's got, this? 
We got fireworks. <laughs> the grand finale. <laughs> so, Carrie, we just really want to thank you. <laughs> With, uh, well, thanks a lot. Salute. Thanks a lot, Jared. And uh, next time I'm down down in New Jersey doing field work, maybe uh, we got maybe a place we'll meet to up. Either have a meal or stay or have some tea or yeah, or, or yeah. just uh, go have explore to make it over some to the Delaware spots. if I can. Yep. That would be <laughs> okay, fantastic. Thank Great. You. Thanks so much.